0: This Week on the Back Table Podcast. Rogam has been routinely administered to women who are at the end of their childbearing who have an abortion. They have absolutely no desire to have a future pregnancy. Say they're 40, 42 years old, have an unattended pregnancy, their other kids are teenagers. Most abortion providers in the country would almost force that patient to have Rogam. It really wasn't even a discussion. There was no shared decision making about, well, is it worth it? And when you throw in there how it's made, I think a lot of patients might think twice about it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com.
1: I just wanted to open up this episode and say thank you so much to Matt Reeves for joining us on another episode. I've known Matt for a long time. So Dr. Reeves is the chief executive officer and founder of the DuPont Clinic a center that provides patient-centered abortion care in all trimesters. With a team at DuPont Clinic, Dr. Reeves has worked to re-envision the patient experience, create a new patient flow without a waiting room, develop new shortened protocols for later abortion, improve nurse-administered moderate sedation techniques, and introduce new GYN instruments. After completing undergrad at UPenn, it sounds like you attended Harvard Med School, completed OBGYN, Residency at UCSF, where you also did the fellowship in clinical ultrasound, and then the fellowship in family planning at the University of Pittsburgh, and also completed an advanced training and clinical research program. At Pitt, you also got the MPH studying statistics, research methods, and decision modeling techniques and then joined the medical faculty at Pitt for three years with an NIH-funded K-Award. After one year at Conrad, a USAID-funded product development division of Eastern Virginia Medical School, Dr. Reeves served as the chief medical officer of Women Care Global, where his work focused on expanding use of manual uterine aspiration and introducing mifepristone and levonorgestrel implants to new markets. Prior to his current position, he was the medical director of the National Abortion Federation, where He worked to improve the quality of abortion care across North and South America. Lots of appointments, including at the ACOG Society of Family Planning, Clinical Associate Professor of OBGYN at GW, Stanford, and Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, as well as serving on national committees at the Society of Family Planning and ACOG, and the Clinical Affairs Committee at SFP, and the Clinical Practice Guidelines Committee. So, I am so happy I get to talk to you about this Rogam, because actually, this all started, this episode, Genesis, started because you and I were having dinner, and then you described Rogam to me as shady man serum, and I was like, wait, wait, tell me more, tell me more, and of course, you being the polymath Math, international man of mystery that you are, was telling me about how... You went to a conference that's just all on rogam, and I was like, "Tell me more." So tell me how you ended up attending this conference. Like, what is rogam? Why do we care?
0: It started with a, a meeting at Genodi Health Project where they invited about twelve of us to discuss the issues around Rh negativity and pregnancy and preventing alloimmunization and and what rogam is. And one of the postdocs a pathologist who was around when they were developing Rogan was there and told us the whole story of how it developed, including where the 72 hours came from, which of course is purely practical because they were pathologists. They did not work on the weekends. So if someone needed Rogan, they needed a window long enough so they could wait. So that's where 72 hours Wait, what do you mean from? 72
1: hours? What does 72 hours have to do with anything?
0: Oh, you know, you have to give Rogam seven, within 72 hours of delivery.
1: Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, OK.
0: Yeah. The 72 hours was because they didn't want to come in on the weekend.
1: So yeah, tell me this story because, you know, I tried looking up a PubMed search on Rogam and there's a really old obstetrics and gynecology article from 1991 that is not available. Yeah. So <laughs> if you read the abstract, it's super breathless, like in terms of the de- description. So like, what did this guy tell you?
0: Well, a lot of interesting things. I mean, I went into this meeting not really knowing anything in detail about rogam, But what he described was that when they were developing it, they discovered that you couldn't just take serum from one man, right? Basically, they sensitize men by injecting them with RH-positive blood, RH-negative men injecting them with RH-positive blood, and they get sensitized. And they could collect the antibodies from these men and then look at their neutralizing abilities against... RH positive red blood cells. And basically what they found was that one man serum wouldn't work, that you had to pool the serum of multiple men. And the idea was that you basically needed to cover the RH antigen so that all the potential epitopes on it were blocked, right? So you couldn't just have it block bind one spot on the program. You had to basically cover the thing with uh, antibodies so that it prevented the exposed person from getting any exposure to the Rh protein, Rh antigen. And so that they had to pool it. And because of that reason, you can't make it in a um, hybridoma model where you you have a, a cell line that secretes one antibody because you need lots and lots and lots of antibody types. You can't have one antibody, you can't have two, you have to have, they didn't know exactly how many, but enough to really cover the Rh antigen. So basically to make it, you have to take the serum from many men and and then condense it down into units.
1: So like back up for a second and like why do we even care about this? Like for people who may not know.
0: Okay, yeah. So imagine most know about RH immunization in women. So it's when an, an RH negative woman has an RH positive fetus and during the birth process she is exposed to some of the blood from the fetus and will develop antibodies. And in the course of that, those antibodies stay. And in the next pregnancy, some of those antibodies, because the antibodies from the mom cross the placenta actively, they will enter the fetus and attack the fetuses RH-positive red blood cells in the next pregnancy. And generally in the second pregnancy, it's not a big deal. But with enough pregnancies and with enough blood exposure, so the amount of blood exposure varies in each pregnancy, so the sensitization can vary, but eventually, an Rh-negative woman who has enough Rh-positive babies will typically become sensitized, and the result, when she has enough sensitization, is that her antibodies are essentially attacking the fetus's red blood cells. And those cells get cleared, and the fetus can develop anemia, profound anemia, and even die. And so Rogan was developed to essentially help through a passive immunization sort of way, clear the red blood cells from the patient's bloodstream so that she isn't exposed to those RH-positive red blood cells. And this is very effective, and it works great. The thing they discovered, which was a bit controversial apparently at the time, was that traditionally give two doses, one at 28 weeks and then one right after delivery. And when they started with the right after delivery thing, everyone thought that would do it, but it turns out it didn't. And they had to add this dose at 28 weeks, which apparently at the time was very controversial. This would have been in the 50s and 60s because those antibodies, the ones that are injected, will cross the placenta as well. It's not enough to do any harm to the fetus, but it was still controversial at the time. But giving that 28-week dose is what made it not quite 100%, but very close to 100% effective. And so we've been doing that. We've been doing a dose at twenty-eight weeks and a dose at forty weeks ever since. And the thing that was never really studied in any systematic way was, you know, this is great for continuing pregnancies, but what about miscarriages? What about abortions? What about ectopic? And basically, we just kind of went crazy giving rogam to everybody for everything when there really wasn't any evidence except for those doses.
1: So, can we go back to the what you're saying about rogam development? Because what I could tell was it was developed by Columbia University researchers, it sounds like. And there were pathologists and I'm sure some heme people involved. And then it sounds like prisoners from Sing Sing were the initial RH-sensitized individuals. Can you tell me more about that?
0: I wish I could. I can't tell you a lot more. I imagine they've buried that history. I imagine they were, in quotes, volunteers. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure uh, how that happened or transpired, but yeah.
1: They would not pass the city program training. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah the,
0: the, the research <laughs> the ethics, ethics training yeah. might have not you know, had not been developed. Yeah. So most of the initial volunteers for donating the serum were RH negative prisoners who were sensitized and then their blood collected. Yeah.
1: And then do you happen to know about like, how did they scale this up? I mean, I read some article a couple of years ago that this one man who's like in his 70s is the main supplier of all the Rogam. Is that true?
0: Oh, uh, I don't know a whole lot about the supply line for Rogam. I do know that it is limited and becoming more limited. Not surprisingly, this isn't a popular line of work. And so there's, there's more and more people, just because there are more and more people who need it and not an increasing supply. And so this raised the issue of, like, do we really need to use it for all these things, the miscarriages, the topics.
1: And So what was the impetus for this invitation that, you know, these you and these other 11 meeting?
0: It was really about abortion and do we need to be giving it for every six-week abortion? And because it is becoming more expensive and more limited, and is there even any evidence that we need it? Turns out there really wasn't much, almost none.
1: Yeah, because it's the full dose that 28 and term is like 300 mics and then microgram is like i can't even remember it's like 100 or something or 75 mics
0: 50 50, 50. 50
1: mics and then i'm pretty sure yeah and then it's that's one fit. and then it's like what a total guesswork probably there's all sorts of questions about i know a couple you know hillary gamble i remember she was doing some work on like Hymeric cells circulating throughout the maternal circulation, and then how we were using the KB, which is a terrible test, to try and quantify fetal RBCs in the maternal bloodstream. But like, I don't even know, it sounds like the technology for that has really improved lately.
0: Yeah. So using flow cytometry, we're able to get much better estimates of how many fetal red blood cells are actually in maternal circulation. And that's where the, some of the newer data comes in, that how many fetal red blood cells were introduced by abortion procedures. And it turns out, basically none. For most of the women, the difference between before and after was zero and the amount of circulating fetal.
1: That was for first trimester or second trimester, or how, how far along were we talking?
0: With the flow cytometry, there were two studies in the first trimester, and neither showed any increase in fetal red blood cell exposure after the abortion.
1: And then our practice has always been RH negative moms, any kind of like vaginal bleeding, first trimester abortion, any kind of vaginal bleeding at all. An RH negative mom, we'd be giving Rogam. Like how is this data going to change that kind of practice? I mean, we only have first trimester data, but what do you see, like, where are we going with the guidelines? And then where do you see our future thinking
0: Well, just to clarify, there was one second trimester study, and it used KB testing. And without going into all the methods of the KB test, it it does pick up some maternal cells, and so it's not perfect. But they did a study using that and found no difference before and after, no significant difference before and after surgical abortion. So it's also likely that even in, in second trimester abortion, the amount of exposure is pretty small. No one's ready to give up Rogan for second trimester yet. But for first trimester, the data is compelling enough that the Society of Family Planning has recommended that ROGAM isn't needed through 12 weeks.
1: Yeah, I think the ACOG is probably working on something. I'm not on the OB side, but I would absolutely think that that is coming down the pike. I saw the JAMA article, and our former colleague and friend, Corey, was instrumental in this research, Corey Schreiber, who's at Penn.
0: Yeah, it was her fellow, Sarah Horbath who led the research. So yeah, it's good research, and, and it's very compelling.
1: And then, how does the U.S. compare to the other countries in terms of practice patterns, and what are they seeing in terms of sequelae? Be-
0: yeah, WHO has already, said, and they have a different, slightly different audience because they're international, where often Rogam isn't available. But a lot of this becomes very relevant in the U.S. with the changes since the Dobbs decision last year, where a lot of women are using mifepristone and misoprostol, and one of these studies was medical. So being able to say that you can do mifepristone and misoprostol without needing rogam just makes it a lot easier for folks who may not have access to testing in rogam.
1: And didn't you tell me that most of the world, nobody else gives rogam?
0: Not the way we do, that's for sure. Yeah.
1: Like, are they giving it at 28 weeks and at term too?
0: In some places. And there are parts of the world where RH negativity is fairly common. I had always been taught it was most common in the Basque and Celtic populations, which is true if you have a Western European-centric point of view, but it's also even more common in Saudi Arabia and parts of the Horn of Africa around Ethiopia and Somalia, where it can be up to 20 to 30% of the population. And I don't know the data on what their RHL immunization rates are. But you also have to keep in mind where we are in terms of average numbers of children per family, right, or per person. And really, the the problems with RHL immunization typically don't become severe until the third pregnancy. That's without any rogam at all, and third full-term pregnancy. And that's just not that common anymore. I mean, sure, people have a third pregnancy, but not many are having any, many more than that, and most are having one or two. So the demographics of Fertility have changed a lot. A hundred years ago or even 60 years ago, larger families were much more common. So it's much more important to use GAM to prevent complications and additional pregnancy.
1: That's such a good point. That did pop into my mind. I mean, the average fertility, the median rate in a lot of countries is less than what needs to be, I think it's like 2.4 or something that to, in order to replenish the population. But it's super skewed. Like East Asia, it's like less than two. The US is hovering around two, but in Africa and India and a lot of other places, it's still quite high. I don't know the numbers, but.
0: Yeah. So for the US, it just, when you combine the kind of Venn diagram of fewer pregnancies per person and we're already giving a lot of Rogam, that it becomes less important to give Rogam and pregnancies that really are very low risk. That you're just the likelihood of RH immunization is extremely low. It does happen and and it is seen some. I saw one case in residency and it was a patient who had a some sort of trauma, I think a gunshot probably. They were out of RH negative blood, and so they she was gonna apparently might have died. So they gave her blood, Rh positive blood in the hope that she was Rh positive, and she wasn't. So she got a full unit of RH-positive blood, and she was sensitized and had alloimmunization with her subsequent pregnancy. But barring that, the incidents like that, it's almost unheard of.
1: Yeah, I know. I don't think I saw one case in residency. So, yeah, that that is super interesting. And then you were telling me in Sweden or somewhere in Scandinavia, it's also super rare and they don't routinely give it, right?
0: Yeah, and that's where the demographics issue comes in. So in Sweden, they don't use Rogam for first trimester abortion. And they do have great research databases, right? So they do these great population level research databases. So several of us went to some researchers and I said, Could we look at this? Could we look at RHL immunization and who has it and whether they've had medical abortions and does it cause it? And they went and looked at it. And basically they found that there are so few, there are very few abortions because they have great access to contraception, few re- relative to the US. And there Total fertility is so low that there are very few pregnancies after a medical abortion didn't get Rogam for too few for them to look at. It's a country of 5 million people. So, it, you know, there aren't a lot of Rh negative people who had a medical abortion who then go on to have a, a live birth. When you kind of combine all those aspects, you get down to very few patients. And they said, not enough to, to look at because they just yeah yeah there aren't many pregnancies there aren't many kids being born in that group or any group that's
1: super interesting <laughs> so it sounds like we need to uh go to saudi arabia and the horn of africa <laughs> Yeah, <laughs>
0: like, yeah.
1: And, like, ask what, the, what the
0: well the, and they and they don't use it at all in in the ethiopia i don't know what their rhl immunization rates are I, I was in ethiopia early this year and we talked about it and they said no they said we also. And they said, yeah, we do see it every now and then, but they couldn't really say whether it was related to the abortions or just lack of rogam generally. So it's not clear. And maybe they'll be able to do some research on it, but we don't have any information there.
1: So that just kind of begs the question, like, what is our responsibility as OEGYNs in terms of safeguarding individuals versus like a more public health lens on isoimmunization Versus like the rogam supply and production issues, because I know like when we talk about, I don't know, I'm just going to give an example that came up, like how we screen for endometriosis or whatever. And our Canadian colleagues are like, oh, well, we, you know, they just have a very different viewpoint on it. Like the way they're just not enough like advanced MIG surgeons to deal with this issues so it's like super referred and they just use everything like as a you know these very strict public health guidelines in the US is there's guidelines but it's a little bit more individualized approach and it seems like Rogram is definitely a public health kind of
0: yeah intervention yeah
1: an intervention So like what is your take what are your feelings on this or what do you how do you see this story evolving? Well, I think
0: for a long time, it was basically with Rogan, the case of the more the better, right? But there didn't seem to be any harm to using lots of it. So patient comes in with a little spotting in the RH negative, give them Rogan. And anything you do that might cause any fetal blood to enter the maternal circulation, give them Rogan. And without really evidence to verify that there's actually a need for Rogan. And as the supplies decreasing and... The potential benefits are less, right? Because if you only have three pregnancies in your lifetime, and how much are you getting? You say the first one, you got the full dose of rogam as is termed. The second one's a miscarriage at five weeks, and you have a uterine aspiration. What's the benefit to you as a patient for that? Presumably, you want a third pregnancy. And and even more than that, Rogam has been routinely administered to women who are at the end of their childbearing who have an abortion. They have absolutely no desire to have a future pregnancy. Say they're 40, 42 years old, have an unattended pregnancy, their other kids are teenagers. Most abortion providers in the country would give that, almost force that patient to program. It really wasn't even a discussion. There was no shared decision making about, well, is it, is it worth it for me to get rid of that? And when you throw in there how it's made, I think a lot of patients might think twice about it. It's not. Entirely benign substance. It is pooled human product from men, as you pointed out, who maybe <laughs> aren't from the best circumstances. And
1: uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's there's. Screen. I, I don't know. I don't know how it is now.
0: But <laughs> like, back with I'm sure there's screen. The rich... <laughs> <laughs> We've come
1: a long way from our prison race
0: <laughs> Program. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who's doing it now, but. <laughs> people that, you know, are going to take blood products from 100 prisoners at Sing sing and inject it <laughs> into you. How, how do you feel about that? <laughs> oh my God. Regardless of where they're from, they're take a pooled product from 100 men and inject it. When you have no desire to have another pregnancy, you're not concerned about future aloe immunization. And in the bigger picture, there's a shortage really internationally of this product. So I think that kind of Shared decision making and that kind of viewpoint on using a what's becoming a scarcer resource has changed how we're using gap.
1: Yeah, it is interesting because I it never even occurred to me about like stewardship of this resource is just like giving blood products like that. Just generally speaking, I remember people just being like, "Let's just give two units," and then we were going by these numbers like hemoglobin of ten, cardiac patient, whatever. And then I just saw this whole series in JAMA about how restrictive transfusion is better, and they use a a cutoff of 7 grams per deciliter. And
0: That came out when we were in medical school, that study of the 7 versus 10.
1: Oh, really? I didn't even realize that.
0: Yeah, it was a randomized trial in late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it took a while to get into practice.
1: I mean, 20 <laughs> years, over 20 years later. I mean, I went to medical yeah, school typical. like in 1998 <laughs> like, to 2002. But anyway, there's chronic blood shortages. I mean, yeah, the, yeah. the screening is intensive. And I don't know. I, I didn't even think about it. That moiety must be so big that it just has to be pooled, like you said. Yeah. And I don't know how many people they require, but I've never even seen volunteers for this. Do they use it yeah, through the blood uh, uh, bank or how, do, how does that work?
0: I really don't know the details of how it's made. I don't know how they recruit people. I guess maybe if you're RH negative, you get targeting advertising on Instagram. Right?
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Yeah, and then where do you think that in terms of Do you think that, like, with maternal trauma or these other things, you know, we always used to get these patients, like, car accident, we send a KB, whatever. Is it, like, feasible to do flow cytometry to quantitate these things and have a little bit more precision about titrating rogam dose?
0: Not anytime soon. I know for the studies that Sarah Horvath did with Corey Schreiber that, that they had to set up their own lab protocol. They weren't doing it through the routine hematology lab. They had to set up a a whole special area to do their flow cytometry. So it was not coming to a lab near you.
1: And then what do you think is the resistance or the uptake going to be? Because I think there's a lot of...
0: Oh, yeah. I think it'll take a long time. Yeah. I mean, in some, some cases, it's going there quickly. So like the one area is medical abortion by telemedicine. So using mifepristone and mesoprostol... Via telemedicine, which has just dramatically increased over COVID and with these recent bans and abortion bans in many states. And so basically, most of those telemedicine programs have already implemented the SFP guidelines and they aren't doing RH testing. So they don't even know. So there's not a lot of Rogan being used in those. And the number of abortions being performed by telemedicine has increased dramatically. So in that way, I think the impact has already already begun. But when it gets to the community level, well, maybe like the uh, the study of the uh, transfusing at 7 versus 10 for ICU patients, and that may take 20 years. Hopefully not, but uh, it may take a while before that's really implemented.
1: You know, what's interesting is I think sometimes like the supply chain will just force our hands because maybe the COVID basically made us all adopt telemedicine. You know, and then supply chain issues made us be more green. Like we couldn't get certain things and you just had to.
0: Like lidocaine for a while, right? Yes. Um,
1: (laughs) Well, there's periodic, there's been periodic lidocaine shortages for the last like 10 years, I would say. It's fine and then it's not fine and then it's fine again. So we have to be inventive. I mean, the lidojets. they've been using those. I don't know if you've ever tried.
0: Like the Eurojet? Yeah, the Eurojet. Yeah. Using it for what? Lidocaine. Injecting it.
1: Yeah, you can inject it. Oh my goodness. Yeah.
0: Never occurred to me.
1: Yeah, but it's just huh. a, just a more viscous form.
0: Yeah. But huh.
1: do you it, you're you're using it like for injection?
0: Paracervical block. Yeah,
1: you can use the LidoJet. Really? It's just a different viscosity. I don't. I wouldn't see why you can't. It's harder to inject, probably, but not by much.
0: It sounds like something uh, a good plastic surgery thing, like a filler and a. <laughs> at the same time.
1: <laughs> I mean, I I I think it, it's like the same stuff, it's just thicker, right?
0: I'm not going to try it first. Okay. Let me know.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I don't I don't need to do a lot of cervical blocks, but anyway, it's just interesting because I know there's this implementation science and they talk about barriers to evidence-based or implementing evidence-based practices and then also like identifying barriers. And then actually, I think a bunch of the different national societies have these Choose Wisely campaigns. I don't know if you've seen them, but they're no. they're basically like, once things like Rogam are in practice, for instance, it's really hard for people to let it go because they're just used to doing it. It feels the right like thing. Yeah. the right thing. And there's all this data and evidence to do it. And that's why we always did it. But there wasn't all this evidence and data to support it. It was just like administering all that oxygen to the neonates or whatever. Like that took, I don't know, probably 20 years to discontinue as well once they started studying that. And so I think there's all just a lot of things where it's hard to discontinue. And the, these Choose Wisely campaigns are just trying to promote conversations between clinicians and patients. And um, so it looks like it's a ABIM, but I think that other societies...
0: For Shared decision-making.
1: Yeah, shared decision-making, but also just like implementing like evidence-based practices and it avoids unnecessary medical tests, treatments, and procedures. So anyway, yeah, they have all sorts of different specialties here. Although I don't see Joy in here, but anyway, <laughs>
0: looked, Someday, it's like I was just looking at
1: this. So anyway... I do appreciate you coming on this podcast, though, and and talking about this, because this is like a hot topic right now, and I think it's truly right off the presses. I mean, these papers were just published in the last year or so.
0: Yeah, yeah. the, The last one in JAMA was last month. Well, I guess two months ago now. So yeah, it's hot off the press.
1: Any other parting thoughts that you can give to the listeners on this topic or anything else that's like top of mind, since I have your ear?
0: No, I think we covered everything. And if you haven't thought about Rh antigens and all this for a long time, it's worth thinking about again about how it works and, and whether you need to use Rogan. But hopefully, this will decrease the use of Rogan when it's not needed and make it easier for everyone to get it when they do.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think access is a, is a huge issue. So thank you so much for illuminating yeah, thanks for us having me. and the listeners. And then you can follow Dr. Reeve's clinic on Instagram, <laughs> which is how I follow it. I follow your the, <laughs> the latest news related to late-breaking stuff. And then are there any other resources on this topic that people can look at online or anything else? Like, I think SFP has a statement on it, right?
0: Yeah, SFP has a statement that just came out earlier this year. ACOG should be releasing something probably early next year. There are WHO guidelines that are available online as well, so there's lots of info. And if you can get to JAMA, Sarah Horvath was the first author of that paper last month. But there are only so many papers on R H exposure in uh, at abortion. Sarah Horvath co-authors, Courtney Schreiber the senior author. Volume three hundred and thirty, issue twelve. I will read the whole DOI thing, but it came out on September twenty-six.
1: So hot off the presses, guys. Thank you so much, Matt, for coming on the show and for telling us about this really important topic. I think it's going to be practice changing. It obviously Mm -hmm. already is. And I find it super interesting to sort of delve into these areas that you just take for granted as part of your medical training. And then you realize that it's like kind of not based in a lot of... There's definitely a rationale to do it, but... When you dig deeper in the first trimester of data in particular, it's and you see yeah. the review the science, it's it's a different story. So I think that's gonna be totally one of the trends that we see in, in medicine as well. Just trying to I hope
0: so. We get more and more data about things that we thought we had data about that we really didn't.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, we'll see you, okay?
0: All right, great talking to you. All
1: right, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore backtableobgyn on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtableobgyn is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman,
1: and Amy Park.
0: Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon. With support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. With support from
1: Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Overjinsky. Show notes and social media by Emma Landonwich and Lindsay Beecham. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Louis
0: Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.